0: Okay, uh, chapter review time, Acts chapter 22 is the defense to the Jews in Jerusalem, Acts 23, the defense to Sanhedrin, chapter 24, defense to. Felix, chapter 25 is a defense to Festus, and then he appeals to Caesar, chapter 25, or 26 rather, before Herod Agrippa, chapter 27, the journey to Rome, voyage to Rome, and there's shipwreck, and then chapter 28, last chapter, Malta. Rome itself, and then we see Paul teaching. Okay, we left off at chapter 25, about verse 12 last week as we were studying, and I wanted to touch on a couple of things. At this point in the text, Paul has appealed to Caesar. Festus seemed inclined to uh, push Paul in the direction of going back to Jerusalem, and be tried there before me, but be tried there in Jerusalem before these Jews. That's quite a hostile environment. Paul knew all too well that they st- still wanted to kill him. That's been two years, but Paul is still on their list to, to, uh, they haven't forgotten about Paul, have they? So, uh, he appeals to Caesar, pushes the legal case in, in the other direction Rather than go to Jerusalem, let's go, let's proceed, let's just go higher up. Let's go to the higher courts, as it were. One thing that he noted there that I wanted to point out in Acts chapter 25, verse 11, Paul said, if I've committed something worthy of it, I must die, right? And that says a lot. uh, That's not his main point, but it still tells us that Paul believes in capital punishment. That he's worthy of death if he's committed a crime that justifies that. That's kind of a side point, but it is certainly worthy. It ties in well with Romans 13 verse 4. He that bears the sword does not bear the sword in vain. The sword in Romans 13 verse 4 is the idea of capital punishment for the crimes that, that we might commit. The... Also, in verse twelve, chapter twenty five verse twelve, he appeals to Caesar. This is the same as what you'll see later in the chapter verse twenty uh, verse twenty one He appeals to the Emperor. Some of your versions will use the word name Augustus. That was one of his names that he had. But this is Nero. He had about four names that that we could apply to him, but he was the, the Nero at this time, which is certainly interesting. Historically for us to consider that as well. There are a lot of issues going on at this point in time. For particularly as you look at it from the perspective of Felix or Festus. These gentlemen as governors of the area have a political dilemma. They, they're they trying to gain favor with the Jews. If you look back in chapter 24 verse 27. Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and he desired to gain favor with the Jews, so he left Paul in prison. He was desired to gain favor, appease these Jews. As we go on into chapter 25, we see Festus doing the very same thing. In verse 9, he desired to gain favor with the Jews. He wanted to appease these Jews and give them the things that they wanted as well. So it's, it's a group of people that these leaders cannot ignore They are riotous people and always clamoring for things uh, their way, and they can't ignore them politically. Okay, now let's begin with our text here, chapter 25, verse 13. When certain days were passed, after all this had occurred, he, he appeared before Festus, he appealed to Caesar, certain days are passed, Agrippa. The king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and saluted Festus. And as they tarried there many days. Festus laid Paul's case before them. So Herod and Bernice apparently as dignitaries they would come into the city and and salute him. Perhaps as a new leader. He's a new leader. And uh, perhaps saluting him and uh, considering him in that way certain days go by and Festus has as we'll see later on he has a particular dilemma himself and how to he certainly is going to let Paul go to Rome to see Caesar but there's a problem that Festus has you recall and you're reading what that was and what to say what what to write we saw Claudius Lysias, even himself, wrote a letter to to Felix in a previous chapter with paul it It went with him as escort to explain the case. Festus is in a quite a quandary, if you will, what to write. he doesn't really understand everything that's going on here, so he doesn't know exactly what to write, and so he talks to Herod. Herod Agrippa about this, perhaps Herod might know a little bit more about this. He has more background, certainly than Festus does in verse 14, he laid the case before him, he said, "There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix about whom when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me asking for sentence against him. to whom I answered that it is not the custom of the Romans to give up any man for you know at your whim. You must appear and accuse him face to face. This must be done in an orderly fashion, in a legal fashion. We must have this done face to face, and then you have the opportunity there uh, to make his defense concerning the matter laid against him. And he continues verse 17: when they were come together here, they I made no delay. I didn't push this case off. It was a very important, it was a very important thing for me to do. I did not delay. On the next day I sat at the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought. Concerning whom when the accusers stood up they brought no charge of such evil as I supposed. I couldn't imagine what, what wrong this person must have done. And he continues verse 19 had, he had certain questions against him of their own religion and of one Jesus who was dead and affirmed to be alive. And you can see the the question mark in Festus' mind. I don't understand who this is and what all the commotion is about this man whom they call Jesus and about he was dead and now he's alive. I don't understand that. And to understand that better, uh, he appeals to the uh, knowledge of Herod. So you see the lack of knowledge that Festus has regarding this case. And notice again here, we're talking about how many times the resurrection has been brought up in this book. This is one of those times, verse 19, that it's brought up without using the, the word resurrection that we've been talking about. So I uh, was perplexed how to inquire concerning these things. Verse 20 asked whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. But then he appealed, appealed to Caesar, verse 21. And I ordered him to be kept until appropriate time. I could send him. And this, again, is the Caesar. Your version may say Caesar Augustus. And this was what we would more commonly be, uh, know as Caesar the, the Nero. And Agrippa, verse 22, said to Festus, I, I would also like to hear him. I would like to hear what he has to say. And he says, okay, tomorrow we'll gather the court together, and you will get to hear what he has to say. You will hear yourself of Paul. Now on the morrow, if you would imagine here in verse 23 through the end of the chapter, we have a a gathering of the court. The court is all gathering, and we have the dignitaries, the the authorities in in that area. They're all gathering together in the court, apparently, it seems, in in a regular court assembly, uh, they gather together, and we see the pop that begins verse twenty three Agrippa and Bernice as dignitaries they come in with great pomp at a parade if or, or as dignitaries would receive. They were entered into the place of the hearing with the chief captains, the principal men of the city, and the at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in Now picture yourself sitting there in this court today because you're going to if you will do that, we'll do that all the way from here to the end of chapter 26. Take your place in the seat, in your seat on the court, if you will, examining Paul once again and listening to what he has to say. Paul is brought in, and can you imagine Paul being summoned to go in one more time, and okay, give us your story one more time. yeah you know, might stop and think, well, you know, chances are this might not go very well for me. I've already appealed to Caesar. I've been told through the Holy Spirit that I'm going to go to Rome. This might not end too well for me. In fact, the last Herod, if you'll go back to Acts chapter 12, the last Herod did what? Beheaded James, tried to do the same thing to Peter. So you have a chance and opportunity to be summoned now to go appear before Herod. I'm not sure what Paul was thinking. But I would probably be inclined to say, no, thank you. I'll just appeal to Caesar and let me go on to Caesar. Take my chances. Verse 24 Festus said. Agrippa, and it's interesting how he addresses him here. This is a relaxed court scene. This is not a hostile environment that Peter or that Paul has seen before. This is a little bit more relaxed. King Agrippa, these people are all here today. We behold this man, this. All the multitude of the Jews made suit to me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my lord. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you, and specially before thee, King Agrippa, that after examination, I might have somewhat to write. After you examine him, I will have something legal, maybe we would say, to write, to carry with him to Rome." Verse 27, it seems to me unreasonable, after all, to send a prisoner to Rome to Caesar without a letter, and was particularly without an appropriate letter that would fit his case. And it is unreasonable, isn't it? And we see the quandary that Festus is in, not understanding the case, not understanding what to write. So the court has gathered together. Festus here apparently admits before the court that he doesn't know what to write. It's kind of an interesting thing. He's the governor now. The governor ought to know, but this governor doesn't know. And it's because he's got these very hostile Jews that he doesn't understand their beliefs. And uh, he needs to understand it better. So he tells the whole court. That this is why we're gathered together. To listen to Paul and Agrippa, you particularly are well suited to listen to him to determine, help me determine what to write. Notice that verse 25, as he's saying this, that Festus admits Paul's condition, as far as he can tell, is what? He's done nothing Worthy of death. From the evidence that I've seen, he's done nothing worthy of death. Now remember that point, particularly as we end chapter 26. They can't see anything wrong that he's done after examination. And I also want you to go back before I forget this. Let's go back to verse 19 once again. I Failed to mention this a moment ago, but as Festus is rehearsing this to Agrippa, he alludes to the fact that part of the core problem is that about this Jesus who is dead and affirmed to be alive. Now, if you go to what we see here in Scripture, the first part of the chapter, that was not mentioned by Paul. So apparently, Paul mentioned it in the court or perhaps at some other time, to Festus, but we don't see that laid out before us in black and white. But it is something that Paul did tell Festus about the resurrection at some point in time. He knew that that was part of the problem, not understanding it fully though. Any thoughts on chapter 25 before we proceed? All right, let's look at the well, let's go back to Caesarea is where we are. Just a reminder as it relates to Jerusalem. We're on the seacoast there, where the arrow is pointing to, where it's Caesarea, the capital city, where all the rulers, the governors would reside. And then the outline, we I think we covered part of this last week. Verse one through twelve, Festus meets with the Jews in Jerusalem. They come to Caesarea, bring many and grievous charges to Paul. Paul defends himself and then finally says, I appeal to Caesar. Festus, as we saw here, verse 13 through 22, rehearses his case to Agrippa. He needs help understanding this. And then the last part, we see the court gathering together. They assemble together to uh, hear Paul one more time. Now let's go on to chapter 26. The court is gathered, and I wanted to make this point too. It is interesting as you look at these chapters, each of these chapters is, can be divided up as a defense to certain people. Sometimes we don't understand chapter divisions, but these seem quite appropriate to me where they, where they begin here. It would be hard to cut this one off at a certain place, but it is a good place to begin a chapter division where Agrippa and the official court, begins here in verse 1, Agrippa said to Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth his hand, and he made his defense. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, that I am to make my defense before thee this day, touching all the things whereof I am accused by the Jews, especially because thou art expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently." Under, uh, we need to understand that Herod had an understanding of the situation, of the religion of the Jews, better than Lysias. Remember Claudius Lysias in Jerusalem? He was his chief captain. He didn't quite understand what was going on. He goes to Felix, and the defense to Felix, he doesn't quite understand what's going on as well as Herod does and certainly Festus doesn't. All these men that Paul has appeared before did not understand him quite as well as this Herod Agrippa will. And again, remember that this is not so much a hostile audience as what Paul has faced prior to this. This is a little bit more uh, uh, amenable to the The things that Paul is going to say, that Paul has to to say, and you will perhaps, you will feel some of that freedom and ability that Paul has to just say everything that he thinks about his conversion and about the situation that he's been put in. And as uh, we begin here, verse 14, Paul goes all the way back to his youth, all the way back many, many years ago to when he was a youth. And he says, you know, there are people that know me, that knew me then, that knew me when I was growing up in Jerusalem, and if they will hearken back, they will tell you themselves what kind of person I was. From my youth up, which was from the beginning, verse 4, among my own nation and at Jerusalem, know all the Jews they know, having knowledge of me from the very first, if they be willing to testify that after the straightest sect of our religion, I have lived a Pharisee. So he's going all the way back to his youth. He's going back until he matured to, to be a young man. And he's telling... Not only Agrippa, but remember there's a lot of people here in the assembly. I was of the strictest sect of the Pharisees. What he's going to do is is tell about a change that occurred in his life. And tell about the change that took him this way. You might say a complete opposite direction. And there's something that occurred to me. That happened, and I want you to know about that. There is no other sect that is stricter than the Pharisees, and I was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. So much so that I persecuted people that blasphemed our God, what they thought was blasphemy, putting them in prison and killing them. By the way, can you imagine being a family member of someone that received the persecution of Paul and having to look at him face to face knowing that he killed your mother, or your father, or your brother or sister? I'm sure there were people there in that day and time that did had to do that. Face Paul face to face and I want us to really understand what Paul is feeling. I was of the strictest sect of the Pharisees. Now, verse 6, I stand here to be judged for the hope of the promise made of God to our fathers. But Perhaps he's going all the way back in thought to Genesis chapter 12, the promise to Abraham. Going all the way back that far. The promise to our fathers, which is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. So, let's look at verse 7. Under which promise our twelve tribes earnestly serve God night and day, hoping to attain that promise. And concerning this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it, Judge, incredible with you if God doth raise the dead? Why is that such a strange thing? And notice as we look at this defense This idea of the resurrection that we've talked about is is you could bracket it here in verse 8 and then in verse 23. He brings it up in verse 8 and then in verse 23. He brings it up in verse 8, just right out of the gates. Right out of the gates, his defense. I'm here because of the hope of Israel. That is rest, rest in the resurrection of Jesus. All of the Old Testament pointed to Pointed to Jesus, the servant who would die, but he would be resurrected. And if that resurrection didn't occur, all that Old Testament prophecy means absolutely what? Nothing. That's Paul's point. All these Old Testament prophecies point to this. If it didn't happen, what does that tell us about all those Old Testament prophecies? They're meaningless. Verse 8, why why does it seem incredible to you? Think about that from a different perspective. If we serve a God that is all-powerful in every way, there is no limit to His power. Why would it be incredible, unbelievable to us that He could raise the dead? It shouldn't be, should it? If we believe... And if the people believed in Jesus and they witnessed Lazarus coming forth out of the tomb, he has the power to do that. It's obviously his power. He has the power to do that. Does he not also have the power to be resurrected from the dead as well? Should we limit God's power? That's part of the whole point, Jesus showing miracle after miracle after miracle. He had every power over every facet of anything that we can imagine. The world, physical world, the spiritual world, death and disease. It should not be incredible after having read all this and known all this. He says, it should not be unbelievable to you that God raises the dead See those brackets there, though. Right out of the gates, verse 8, he mentions the resurrection, and he'll end his defense in verse 23 with the resurrection. Now, let's catch up on our outline here. As Herod and Agrippa have, or Herod Agrippa and Bernice have come into the court, Herod Agrippa is down on the bottom line, Herod Agrippa 2. He is the son of the Herod in chapter 12 that killed James. His sister is Bernice, and the other sister is Drusilla. We saw Drusilla recently. Who is that? Who is Drusilla? She is the wife of Felix, the governor. We read the previous chapter, chapter 24. Herod Agrippa II and Bernice here, dignitaries, leaders. Herod Agrippa too, is about 32 years old at this point in time. He is gaining favor. They're giving him more authority, more, more territory. He's gaining popularity, favor, gaining power. He's on his way up, we might say, up the career ladder. And Now he has the opportunity to hear quite a case with, with uh, Festus. Verse 1 through 24 is the defense before Agrippa. The Jews know his background, he says. I'm judged here today for the hope of promise, that is the resurrection. And now we see his conversion recounted. Let's begin here, verse 9. I've barely thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is while he was a strict, strict Pharisee. I thought I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. This I also did in Jerusalem, and I both did in, uh, I both shut up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I gave my vote against them, punishing them oftentimes in all the synagogues. I strove to make them blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You see the extent to which Paul was willing to go to persecute people. And remember where we are, we're in a, a court scene here. And Paul is taking this defense in what direction? Is he using a great lawyer? is he defending himself by in criminal law where's he taking this defense in what direction it's all religious isn't it this this defense is like it's it's like a sermon isn't it it's almost like they've gathered together for a church service and paul is up there preaching a sermon interesting isn't it Paul, at every opportunity he has, he wants to mention the gospel and the resurrection and Jesus, no matter where he is. In fact, that is the reason he's here. He could go back and say, well, they tried to uh, uh, attack me in the temple, and, and I was purified. He, would, he could hone in on that point. I was, I was purified. They didn't think I was, and he could hone in on that point. But that wasn't the the big problem, was it? problem that they had is what he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth that is resurrected now verse 12 whereupon as I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday O king I saw the on the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining around about me and them that journeyed with me now if this sun or if this light is brighter than the noonday sun it is quite a light isn't it Quite a bright light. When we were fallen, all fallen to the earth, uh, it's interesting that we have three accounts of Paul's conversion because this is one that is a little different. He uh, adds some information here. Verse 14, when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice saying unto me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the goads or the goad. A goad is something, Might think of it like a, A sharp stick that is used to to herd cattle or move cattle in a direction that you want them to go. If you ever use one of those, if you have a cow that is a little bit more humble or agreeable, then he will move right along and go where you want him to go. But some of them you have to poke really, really hard. And Paul is saying that I was one of those that you have to really poke very hard, almost to puncture the skin. I was one of those. God is saying, Saul, Saul, it is hard to kick. You you would not if you're a cattle or an ox. You don't want to kick against the goad because that is the direction you don't want to go, right? You don't want to go against the goad because that hurts worse. Paul is saying, I was being goaded by God. And I have to wonder if he's even including all the things that he was exposed to during his persecutions and imagine the people, the good people, the faithful believers that he was exposed to during all of his persecutions, and it did not touch him. It did not goad him in the direction that God would have him to go. It did not nudge him in that direction. Finally, it took such an event as this something that he absolutely could not ignore, there's no way for him to ignore this, this sign from God. This goad, this poking by the manifestation of Jesus himself on the road to Damascus, verse 15, he said, I I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But arise, stand upon thy feet, For to this end I have appeared to thee to appoint thee a minister and a witness both of the things wherein thou hast seen me and of the things wherein I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I send thee. You'll notice that three times in this passage, Paul brings up the Gentiles. He brings it up in verse 17, verse 20, and again in verse 23. He brings up the Gentiles. These are the people, by and large, this is the people that God wanted me to preach to. Verse 18, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive remission of sins and an inheritance among them that are sanctified by faith in me. This really does sound like a sermon, doesn't it? He's teaching us about repentance He's taught us about the resurrection, about Jesus. He's teaching us about remission of sins, about faith. Does a sermon have to be in this building to be a sermon? No. We don't have to be here to preach the gospel, do we? We don't have to be, have somebody in this pulpit to preach the gospel. We can do it anywhere, on a riverbank, in a, in a court building, We can do it anywhere, can't we? Paul is showing us that. Verse 19, when all this happened to me, he's turning now from the conversion itself to say, Agrippa, maybe Agrippa's hanging at the edge of his seat, wondering, okay, what happened next? Verse 19, he said, Oh, Agrippa, I was not disobedient under the heavenly vision. I believed and I obeyed. When I was being goaded... On that road to Damascus, I was being poked pretty hard. But then I believed. Now Paul is going to go into another direction. I want you to sense this too. This is what happened to me. This is what I was. This is what happened to me. And now, verse 19, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Now, what about you all? What about you, Agrippa? But I declared, verse 20, both to them of Damascus first and at Jerusalem and throughout all the country of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, doing works worthy of repentance. There again, we've seen... Resurrection, we see the remission of sins, repentance, faith, doing good works. So much of the gospel right there in this chapter, isn't it? Verse 19, before I uh, go too far, for, stray too far from verse 19, I, I do want to say that as Paul is turning this from the conversion itself to look at what it, look at what it did to me, it changed even me. It changed me. I was going in this direction, and now I'm going in this direction. Perhaps there was no greater asset that the devil had than Paul. He put fear into the Christians and persecuted them. Could there have been? Could, could the devil have an, had anybody better than Paul on, on his side? No, I don't think so. Paul said, "I was going in this direction." Look at what it took to change me. Look at what it took. Now he turns the attention upon them. For this cause I was seized in the temple. Verse twenty-one. Now here's the allusion to the actual uh, case that that. The event that started this. And they were trying to kill me, verse 21. I obtained the help that is from God. Now I stand here today before you, testifying to all people here, both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses did say should come. Now that's what we referred to in verse 7 and verse 8, that Moses and the prophets foretold of the resurrection Why is it incredible that you believe that there is a resurrection? That's what all that was pointing to. If there is no resurrection, then all that is useless and meaningless. It said, I'm standing before you, verse 22, and declaring you what the prophets and Moses told us would come about, how that the Christ, verse 23, would suffer, that he would be resurrected of the dead, and then proclaim both light to both the people and to the Gentiles, that was prophesied in Isaiah 49, the light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49 indicates to us that is it too small of a thing for Jesus, the servant, to die for the sake of the people, the Jews? No. He he must also die for all people. That's Isaiah 49, verse 6. All people, including the Gentiles. So he's a light. To all people, even the Gentiles. I also think about John chapter 1 uh, verse nine. Jesus came into the world, He was the light of the world. He became a light to all men, John 1 verse nine. Now as he's concluding this and perhaps even uh, seemingly interrupted by Festus, Festus says, "Paul, you're mad. You are a madman you're crazy and after hearing all this about this dead man jesus who was raised from the dead perhaps that's like the response that some people say it's foolishness first corinthians 1 verse 18 the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness to us who believe it is the power of God, it's a, a very manifestation of the power of God. Yes. That preaching to the Gentiles, that goes all the way back to the original promise God made to Abraham. Mm-hmm. Three promises. The third one was all nations will be blessed in your seed. Mm-hmm. That would be Gentiles. That would be everyone. So why should we be, why should we be surprised when th- throughout the Old Testament, the Gentiles are included in prophecy? And why should we be surprised about that or the resurrection for anything, uh, anything of that matter? Yes.
1: I just wanted to say he used his story and his history and his um, kind of his legacy, um, both good and bad, to, to preach to these people. And, and you know, Herod uh, says, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian, which mm-hmm. is really sad. But um, but it's almost like he's pouring his heart out to these people, and he's he's pleading with these people, mm-hmm. and about the Christians that would have known he killed their loved one. Um, that's like people who get put in prison for for a Christianity around the world, and they have people that have persecuted them or hurt them physically, and then later on they become a member of their congregation. And they be, they forgive them and they love them. So, that's what they would probably have done. hmm
0: Verse 26. Or right, let's look at verse 25. We've seen Festus, his response is uh, this disbelief and this is foolishness like some people do. Verse 25, Paul says, I am not mad, most excellent Festus. Notice he keeps his uh, language in check after being called a madman, crazy man. I speak forth words of truth and serveness. Now he turns his attention to Agrippa saying, the king, King Agrippa, he knows all these things unto whom I speak freely. I am persuaded that none of these things is hidden from him. After all, they've not been done in a corner. I'll tell you what's incredible is to think that Agrippa wouldn't have known all these things about Jesus that happened and all these things that occurred to Paul and all these things that had happened in the Jewish nation. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know you believe. Paul, I I think he understood and he knew his audience. He knew what Agrippa probably believed. Agrippa said unto Paul, With but little persuasion, you would also make me a Christian. This uh, reading here is a little bit difficult, even if we go back and look at the original Greek. It's still a little bit difficult to understand exactly what he means. The King James Version would use the phrase, You almost persuade me to be a Christian. Perhaps that is what he meant. Uh, Some of the other versions would leave it a little bit more open. And it may be some of this, he's not having the reaction of Festus, is he? He's not having that foolish reaction. You're foolish, Paul. But he's saying perhaps that, Paul, you're very persuasive. If I were so inclined, you would make me believe too. And perhaps there's something that is holding Agrippa back. Perhaps it's something like those in John 12, verse 43 those Jews that believed in Jesus but for fear of the Pharisees, they were in the their, their fear of being put out of the synagogues because they sought the glory of who? The glory of men. Perhaps Agrippa falls into that category. He would believe, but he has too much to forsake. His political future and career are on the line. He's on his way up. If I give all that up, I give up the glory of men. Perhaps that's what's holding him back. So you see, I think there are very two very different reactions to the gospel here. Festus says it's foolishness. Agrippa, perhaps he's saying, well, if I was going to believe, you'd probably have convinced me today. Well, However you look at it, Festus and Agrippa still wind up in the same place. Where is that? Disbelief. And as far as we know, they do not obey. So they're in the same place, aren't they? They're in the same category. Felix was terrified. He said, I'll wait for a convenient season. He's in the same category because he did not change. Paul is saying by this conversion account, look at what it did to me. Look at what the manifestation of Jesus did to me. Look at how it changed me. And Paul is urging and crying out to them saying, let it change you. He's not wanting to talk about himself just because he's prideful or boastful. Talk about his past. He's wanting to do this for their sake to lead them to the gospel. Say, so look at me, it changed me. It can change you as well. Verse 29, for that's what Paul says, I would to God that with little persuasion or with much, not only you, Agrippa, but also all that hear me this day might become just like me, except for these bonds. I don't want you to have those. I hope that you would have these. And then as we, as the king gets up, apparently the dignitaries gather separately and they say what about Paul's case? This man has done nothing worthy of two things. Worthy of death, nor bonds either one. That's interesting, isn't it? They say he hasn't done anything worthy of death, nor being imprisoned in any way. So that's quite telling. All right, we better end there, and I appreciate your participation today.